Testing. Testing. Are we recording? Okay, I think we are. Let's talk about some things that matter. Let's take some time to drift and hum. Hi friends and welcome to the Drift and Hum podcast. I'm Robert Martichenko, author of Drift and Hum, the great Canadian-American novel. We have a very thoughtful show for you today as we will explore the power of dealing with adversity and tragedy in our lives. As part of the show, we will have an absolutely incredible interview with LaDonna Alfano. Simply put, LaDonna is a survivor. In addition to our interview, there may be a story or two some music, and possibly a poem along the way. So settle in wherever you are, get comfortable with your favorite drink, and let's take some time to talk about stories that matter. Let's take some time to drift and hum. The 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche is known as the author of the quote, That which does not kill us makes us stronger. A century later, we can find many variations of this concept in many forms, with the easiest being, No pain, no gain. The principle is that through surviving adversity and tragedy, we grow as a person, that we experience hardship, pain, and suffering, and fully experience the essence of life. That wisdom and strength come not as a guaranteed result of aging, but rather from the personal book of knowledge written through diaries of experiencing adversity and personal tragedy. Building upon this, the linear relationship between strength and tragedy would suggest that the strongest people alive would be those who have suffered the most. Yet, I'm not sure this is the case. Like everything in our world, it is very dangerous to generalize and draw blanket conclusions from these generalizations. Does suffering through and surviving personal tragedy result in enhanced worldly insight and a heightened moral character? We know this to be true in many, many cases. However, there may be an equal number of cases where tragedy left the victim physically alive, but unable to continue living a full life. In other words, That which did not kill them only left them weaker. The Nietzsche quote, when taken literally, could possibly bring with it a logical outcome. That is, if in fact that which does not kill us only makes us stronger, then should we not be grateful for adversity and tragedy in our lives? Taken to an illogical extreme, would we consciously wish adversity and tragedy upon ourselves so we can in turn overcome the events and become stronger? That's a tough pill to swallow, and I can't sign up for this argument, nor do any people I have in my life who know personal tragedy firsthand. And so, retreating from this polar extreme, we are left with the more moderate stance of that which does not kill me only makes me stronger. However, I truly hope tragedy does not show up at my doorstep today. A common definition of the word tragedy includes themes such as an event causing a great suffering, Destruction and distress, such as losing a child, a serious accident, being a victim of violent crime, or natural catastrophe. When I think of personal tragedy in my own life and the lives of my extended friends and family, 
I see themes including accidental and untimely deaths, debilitating disease, addiction, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, and other events. Yet, in most cases, when I view my personal landscape, we have carried on. Some stronger, perhaps, some maybe not, but we carry on nonetheless. When reflecting, though, I can safely draw one conclusion. I do not know an instant where, even in hindsight, we would consider the experience of the tragic event some sort of blessing. With true tragedy, at no point do we look back and say, wow, am I ever glad that happened. And so, with this conclusion in mind, we arrive at another conclusion. There is a vast difference between dealing with adversity as opposed to dealing with tragedy. Adversity, as we know it, is the aggregate of those daily challenges we face within our relationships our work, our finances, our general health. Those adversities where working to overcome them will result in us being stronger. However, is this not simply life experience? As the saying goes, shit happens, right? And should we not become smarter, wiser, stronger as we grow just as an outcome of living a life of self-reflection from these life experiences? It seems logical that one requirement for living should be to live, to experience, to deal with adversity and learn and grow in the process. Perhaps one of our societal issues today is people see basic adversity as tragic. We are stressed, we suffer from anxiety, we are scared, we are mad, and we are sad. Yet at the same time, many of us have only simple daily challenges that define any given day. With that, can we reasonably draw a conclusion that adversity is different than tragedy? Interesting enough, The term tragedy inhabits another world from the common definition we just explored. Think of the Shakespearean tragedy, a form of dramatic theater based on human suffering that invokes an accompanying catharsis and maybe even pleasure for the viewing audience. The play is often a dramatic setting dealing with somber themes and will typically involve some great and powerful person who is destined to experience a tragic downfall and often death. And the viewing audience sees it all unfolding as they are aware of the character flaws in the hero. They see the tragic blind spots that are not visible to the character themselves. In this setting, the tragedy is nothing more than a group of uncommitted strangers watching the progressive, obvious, and not surprising destruction of an often destructive character. There's a part of me that wonders why this is even considered a tragedy. At the risk of criticizing Shakespeare... This plot structure could be argued to be nothing more than some powerful dumbass realizing the logical and karma-filled conclusion of being a dumbass. Yes, a Shakespearean tragedy may not describe a typical life at all. Very few of us rise to royalty and power only to allow our blind spots and biases to be so detrimental that we implode in front of innocent onlookers. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying this is not typical of the tragedy that normally impacts the common person. The Shakespearean tragedy seems to focus more on causality, that you reap what you sow, that doing good will deliver good in kind and bad will deliver bad, that tragedy happens because of us. The truth is, typical tragedy happens to us and not because of us. It feels random and unplanned by thoughtful plot or progressive scenes that are building a mountain of personal character flaws that will eventually topple on top of us. Simply put, a lot of tragedy appears to be nothing short of simple, random, bad luck. Universal entropy. Being in the direct line of chaos in a chaotic world. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
In spite of the appearances of randomness, it happens nonetheless, and what we do with it, how we react to it, who we are after the aftermath, would all appear to define who we become as an individual in the life we live after the tragedy. Alas, are we any closer to understanding whether that which does not kill us makes us stronger? Not yet. I am very blessed with having many people that I sincerely call friend. These friendships have varying degrees of tenure, history, and frequency of contact. What makes them sincere friendships, though, is the deepness of dialogue when we do spend time together, the richness, the importance, the relevancy of the conversations. And within my group of friends, we have stories of surviving personal tragedy, which has led to multiple conversations over time, which has resulted in getting closer to answering our question. Now that we have dealt with the essence of tragedy, we need to turn our attention to the idea of strength. Question is, once tragedy has presented itself in its cold form, what does it even mean to be made stronger? What is strength? This is one of two important questions I explored with my friends who know tragedy firsthand. One conclusion drawn is that there are three areas a person can be made stronger from experience. These are physical, intellectual, and spiritual body, mind, and soul. And of these three, becoming stronger from tragedy appears to center itself on the spiritual, the soul. In other words, perhaps some people may dive into becoming physically stronger, or perhaps may learn about a new topic more deeply, but the real strength earned through surviving tragedy comes in the form of spiritual growth, strengthening of the soul, the soul, that elusive, non-physical, non-biological, invisible to x-ray part of our being that is the essence of life, that which defines our desires, our passions, our emotions, and our moral character to differentiate between right and wrong, the soul that allows us to determine the distance between joy and pain, to understand and determine how we will react to adversity and tragedy when it knocks on our door, and most importantly, relative to our conversation today, the soul and our degree of spiritual strength is what determines our strength of purpose. Purpose. The reason something has happened or the reason why something exists. Purpose. The reason for which we are here. Purpose. Why did this happen and why did it happen to me? Purpose. What is my purpose now that I have suffered and lived through this tragedy? Purpose. What am I supposed to do now? In my conversations with friends, the idea of heightened purpose was a common denominator in surviving tragedy. So, to further paraphrase Friedrich Nietzsche, that which does not kill us, if we choose to fight, will make us stronger in soul and purpose. By the way, remind me to loop back to this at the end of my narrative as I probably just offended a whole group of philosophers. Anyway, to me, this makes perfect sense. The tragedy has taken place. We are still here. We must choose what direction to take. Of all the paths available to choose, a path based on fundamental change of perspective, a positive, purposeful change seems appropriate. Which led me to the second question I asked my friends. You have survived personal tragedy. You chose to fight and you have become stronger spiritually and you have a new sense of purpose for your life. But, are you happy? Happiness perhaps one of the most overused and misunderstood words in the English language. 
What's interesting, though, is that there does not seem to be a definition of what it even means to be happy. Don't get me wrong, there are volumes of material about what you can do to become happy, but there's very little on what it actually means to be happy. We see themes such as to feel pleasure, to be content, to be satisfied, but these in themselves would need further description. In the end, perhaps the word happy cannot be described for what it is, but rather what it is not. Meaning, to be happy is simply to be void of pain and suffering. Under this definition, many, many people, in particular in the developed world, should be considered being in a position to be happy. Yet, many people don't seem to be happy. And so the search for answers continues and leads us to another word. There is one word I have not introduced yet that plays a part in connecting our entire conversation. That word is control. Control, or better yet, being in control, plays a key role in the conversation of dealing with tragedy. Overwhelmingly, people who successfully survive tragedy, who become spiritually stronger, who develop a renewed sense of purpose, also share a common belief. That is the belief that we are not in control of events and the workings of the world. That there is a higher power that is in control. A higher power, a divine entity in the form of God or a great spirit. And so, we relinquish our need for control to God and we accept that pain and suffering is a part of life. That the great spirit or God wants us to grow through this pain. That all things work together in this world. That everything is one. The good and the bad, and that when we suffer, this is God challenging us, forcing us to think about our lives, to reflect and understand what is holding us back from being everything we can be, to reflect and understand what is holding us back from living with purpose and being who we were designed to be. In other words, to understand and have faith that there is a larger plan for our lives than we recognize and that there is a higher purpose to be gained from the pain. And through reaching this understanding, we may experience joy. And this joy may seem very similar to the undefined idea of happiness. Yet the joy does not come from money or events or time healing wounds, but rather the joy comes from the steadfast, all-consuming, all-purposeful belief that life on earth is just a single step in a greater journey a journey which preceded our time here and will continue into the next phase when we depart. And the joy is a result of knowing that in the next step, we will enter a place that is without pain, without tears, and in addition to this, we will once again be reunited with those we have loved throughout our journey. Let's call this place heaven. And knowing that this is the next place, knowing that we will one day connect all the dots, We'll one day learn the answers to questions we have no answers for today, combined with the peace one gets by relinquishing control and instead living with a purpose to serve, to help, to be kind, to be a good person. This is how people get through tragedy. This is how we become stronger. This is how we can rationalize the saying, that which does not kill us only makes us stronger. Closing point. Full transparency, I'm not a philosopher and I'm not formally educated on Friedrich Nietzsche. However, I am superficially aware that Friedrich Nietzsche, the author of our quote, actually did not believe in purpose. So I apologize up front for
for offending anybody who understands this much better than I do. Last closing point. Many of us have had our fair share of tragedy and many others have had better luck and have avoided the big bad stuff so far. The irony is often the kindest people in our communities are the people who have suffered most. So, if you are one of the lucky ones, take some time to help those who have been less fortunate. Take some time to make the world a better place at the ground level. Take time, friends. In the midst of a storm The night was rolling on I'm moving slowly You can imagine how I feel. Unless you've been where I am now, you can't know how I feel. I am so sad. I am mad. I just don't understand. Please don't tell me that you can imagine how I feel. How can you know when I don't even know myself? I pray I will wake soon, realizing this is but a dream and that my world has not changed. Please don't tell me that you can imagine how I feel, but please stay by my side. Your presence comforts me. I feel so all alone, yet I sense that you are close. I know I need you. Please don't tell me that you can imagine how I feel. Time will not heal my wound, does not know what I've lost. Although I may laugh again, things are different now. Life will never be the same. Please don't tell me that you can imagine how I feel. I truly hope you can't, for you are my friend, and as my friend, I wish you will never face the pain I feel today. Please don't tell me that you can imagine how I feel. Tell me about the past, of the memories and love I've known. Tell me about the future, how my memories of love will make my future strong. The door was opened to people to share the light, gather strength from the cold, feel your warmth, find some shelter, dark and storm.
Hi friends, before we get to our interview, I just want to set the stage a little bit. LaDonna Alfano became a friend to my wife a few years ago. One day, Kareen came home and told me about this incredible life story that LaDonna had told her. Subsequently, I got to know LaDonna and learned about her story firsthand. I could not help but ask her for an interview, which she gladly accepted. During the interview, you will hear me make mention of a book that she has written. I've read the book cover to cover. It's her story in raw form. The book is not currently available as she is rewriting it and will re-release it sometime soon. As well, at the beginning of the interview, you will hear about an accident. This accident took place on December 29th, 1961 in Abilene, Texas. And with that, let's get started. Hi friends and welcome to the Drift and Hum podcast. I'm really excited about our interview today as I'm getting a chance to talk with LaDonna Alfano, author of My Dance with Opa. Hi, LaDonna. Hi. It's so great to have you here today. I'm a big fan of your book, and I'm really looking forward to us chatting a little bit about it. So with that, I'll just get us started. Your entire story in your book, My Dance with Opa, is clearly impacted by the event that happened to you when you were a child. I'll call it the accident, because that's what you call it in the book. Please tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was about December 29th. My father was in the service. We lived on base. It was four days after Christmas, and we were all as kids were playing on the swing set. I had an identical twin. We were five and a half years old. And I had another sister that was three and a half years old. And our next door neighbors had come over to play. And my little sister was missing. I realized as, as kids were playing. My little sister was missing, so I went in the house to see if, the, if she had gone into the house with our mothers, and she wasn't there. So my mother didn't drive because she's from Chicago and never needed to get a license. So we asked the next-door neighbor. She called my father and asked if our next-door neighbor could drive our car to go look for Patty. That was three and a half years old. So we put all the kids in the car, and we were driving down the road, and a military policeman saw Patty going for a walk and asked her, where are you going? And she said, I'm going for a walk. And so he says, well, come on, your mom's going to be worried about you, and brings her, is walking her home. So we stopped the car and put Patty in the car, and they decided that they were going to go to the S&H Green Stamp store in Abilene, Texas, to get something that they were needing for their New Year's Eve party. And we were crossing four train tracks, and the car had stalled. The train uh, blew its horn four times and hit us. And my little sister died instantly. One of the little boys that was visiting us, he died the next day. He was one years old. And my mother died the day after that, and then my twin died the day after that. And I was in the hospital for two months. I was thrown from the car and landed on the train tracks face first, which split open my whole facial structure down to where they could see the base of my brain. And they put me back together. It's just an absolute tragic story of you and your family. And you talk about the story in your book, My Dance with Opa. What's interesting is it, the book is has so many different themes in it, and you lived through a lot of life after the accident as well, abuses in so many different ways. And I won't go too into that. So the reader, when they read the book, they can understand that. But 
you know, your book is really about you finally meeting your maternal aunt and your grandfather. Uh, however, a lot of life happened before that. Why was meeting your aunt and grandfather so important to you? I I never understood why I had so much loyalty. Family and friends were so important. They were the number one thing in my life. I had such strong morals and values that I didn't get that from my father or my stepmother that adopted me when I was eight years old. I always wondered, what was my mother like? I have totally lost all memory of my mother, and I think it was because I was it was too painful losing her and locked her out of my memory just so I wouldn't feel the pain and wanted to find my family to see what my family was really like. What was my mother really like? And did I take after them more than my father's side of the family? So that was why I was looking for them. And how many years after the accident did you start searching for your mom's father and your mom's sister? I was 34 years old. I had gone through years of trying to make my stepmother love me trying to figure out ways to get her to love me and through years of therapy that she was incapable of loving me. So that's when I decided that I needed to really find my mother's side of the family. And so for six years, I tried to find my family and I would hit a dead end and then I'd stop. And then I'd be on the journey again. I'd hit another dead end and I'd stop. And then it was after six years, I had hit so many dead ends that I didn't know which way to turn. And I saw these guys on TV called International Locators. I said, you can find anybody. So by this time, I assumed my grandparents must be dead. They were, were living in Chicago and was looking for my mother's only sister. You know, and that brings us to a part in the story that I found absolutely fascinating. And this is that you finding your grandfather and your aunt was clearly not easy. So you turn to the television show, Unsolved Mysteries. This is an amazing story. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the funny thing about that, in the six years that I was trying to find my family, friends of mine used to say, you should go on Unsolved Mysteries. You should go on Oprah. You've got such an amazing story. And I would tell them, I don't want to go on national TV to find my family. I just want to find my family. Well, when I got this book from this international locator, they had a book that cost $168 that has all the forms, all the letters, where to send these forms and letters to, to find anybody. And I bought that and waited for that to come in. And it, this big binder comes in and really thick. And I'm like, well, this looks a little daunting. I put it up on a shelf. Well, one night I had gone to bed early and I woke up in the middle of the night with a strong thought, write a letter to Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm saying, no, I don't want to write a letter to Unsolved Mysteries. And then it kept on, write a letter to Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm fighting with this thought that keeps continuing in my head. And I finally had to get up and write the letter because I could not go back to sleep. And I woke up the next morning like in a trance. And I put the letter in an envelope. I put the address on the envelope, put a stamp on it, drove down to the Avon Post Office in Connecticut. And as soon as it left my fingertips... I woke up like, oh my God, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. I'm like, oh, well, if they ever call me, I'll tell them I'm not interested. And a month after I sent that letter, I got a call from Unsolved Mysteries and decided I would do that. So Unsolved Mysteries contacted you. And this, from reading the book, I learned that this was a little bit of a different investigation for them, but they chose to take your story up. So 
tell us a little bit about that and then it ultimately did air and when did it air and what was the result of the story airing? Well, come to find out, they say that usually they have the uh, mail room and usually it takes three to six months before your letters get answered. But this was a woman, her name was Mary Pat, that didn't even work in the mailroom. She wasn't busy this one day and just decided to go into the mailroom and pick up a letter and see what it looked like. So she picked the letter on the top where they would have turned that box over and put it on the bottom, whoever would have really gone in there. And she just loved the story. So they flew me to Arkansas. They got a free train. Uh, They didn't have to pay for the train. It was a very old train. They just had to pay for the conductor. Um, Unsolved Mysteries got a... This is the, just let me interrupt you, this is the train to reenact the accident where you were the only survivor and your family other than your father perished. Right. So they reenacted the train accident. They first reenacted all those kids playing on the swing set and our mothers coming out and saying, come on, we're getting in the car. Then the train, they're on the train track and the train blowing its horn. And then all these people that were around us, but like screaming and and then the train hitting the car and then me being in the hospital with bandages all over my face and my father telling me that my mother and sisters had died and I smiled and said the angels came down and got them. He knew I was going to be okay. Wow. And eventually the episode aired and you were in the studio with them when it aired and they have apparently they have a bank of phones so tell us about that yep they flew me to burbank california where the where the um phone center is and they have 30 terminals of people getting calls and the name of my show was called train wreck amnesia so i could and what year was that this was april 28 1996 i would go to any of the terminals and see if somebody was calling for mine because they would put whoever that person was, and my, the name of my show was Trainwreck Amnesia, so I could go to any of the terminals and look at the top to see if somebody was calling about my story. At one point, it was on every terminal. People kept on saying that my grandfather had moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I finally said to Mary Pat, the woman that was running this part, she said, you know what, I said, he may be still alive here. I'm thinking he's passed away because I couldn't find him all these years, and I'm wondering if he's still alive. Finally, Mary Pat came to me, and she said, Donna, come over here. I want you to talk to this person on this phone. So I put the headset on, and it was a woman from Chicago that was a good friend of my grandfather's. And she was telling us um, how us kids were there right before the accident happened. And I didn't remember that. And she told us a story, told me a story about my, my twin and I and what had happened. And then all of a sudden she comes out and says, this is your father's phone, your grandfather's phone number and his address. And I'm like, he's still alive? And she said, yeah. So Mary Pat says, let's call her. Tell her we got to go. You can call her later. Keely Shea Smith was standing there with the cameras, lights, action, ready to roll, trying to call my grandfather. It was busy. It was busy. It was busy. And finally, somebody jumped up and said, there's somebody online here that says he's your grandfather. And so I met my, you know, I talked to my grandfather. He was from Germany. His name was Opa, not Grandpa. That's how it started. And then you went to visit your grandfather and your mom's sister as well. They flew me to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Unsolved Mysteries flew there too to film the reunion. They made sure that nobody went to the airport when I was flying in, the two producers that went. 
It's because they really wanted a, a real re- reenactment of us finding each other. I was a nervous wreck. You know, you don't know, are you going to like these people? Are they nice people? You know, so, you know, after talking to my grandfather, I found out I would, him and I were like two peas in a pod. I've never met two people that were so similar. We had the exact, so many different characteristics that were similar. So it was just amazing meeting them. I ended up spending four days with them, met my my grandmother that helped raise my mother and my, my aunt, and my aunt and my three cousins. They were just awesome people, awesome, loving, wonderful people, and I found out who I took after, and I totally took after my mother and my grandfather. That's incredible. And your book, My Dance with Opa, details the rest of the relationship with your grandfather, and I don't want to give any of that away because you really need to read the whole book to get the essence of the story. So I want to switch gears a little bit to connect with the Drift and Hum community as well. And outside of this incredible story, which is part tragic, you are a survivor. However, you today, I I don't want to give away your age, but I think you're probably over 50. Yes. You are currently a talented writer, obviously, but you're also a painter and you're a sculptor. And so you're an artist in the truest form. And so my question is, how do you feel your life experiences, this incredible life that you've had of survival, has contributed to the fact that you were drawn to the arts? I'm not really sure. I What I can say, I've always been drawn to the arts. I've been drawing my whole life and wanted to go to art school, but wasn't allowed to because you know my stepmother told me that you can't make any money as an artist. So I'm self-taught, just love getting my hands dirty and creating beautiful things but my I would have to say that I'm very drawn to faces I love drawing faces I love sculpting faces and I think that's because my face is not perfect and so I want to create the perfect face because I don't have one so I think that you know I'm so drawn to faces and when you say your face isn't perfect you're talking about the scars from the accident the train accident when you were little right Well, I can tell all listeners out there that your face is perfect. You know, and another question for you is many artists are drawn to their art form as a a form of spirituality. And it's interesting you bringing up the drawing of the faces and connecting that to your own self-image, perhaps. But do you identify with a spiritual side of your life? And how do your art and your faith uh, intersect? And if your art and faith do intersect, do they even intersect with this incredible story of yours as well? Yes, totally. Actually, when I found out that I could be a sculptor, my very first sculpture that I tried to do was the one footprints about the prayer of somebody walking down the beach and how he looked back and saw that there was only one set of footprints and that wondered why Jesus wasn't with him in those roughest times of his life. And he says, oh, son, he goes, I carry you. So that is a pair of man larger than man's hands and a woman sitting in them that represents me, that he carried me through that. And it was actually meeting my grandfather that brought back my spirituality and the story about how that happened, that I have total faith now that God is there watching over me, and I just have to believe in that he's there. Well, LaDonna, that's an incredible story, an incredible series of events that you lived through and what you've done with all of it. And for our listeners out there, the book is called My Dance with Opa by LaDonna Alfano. LaDonna, just thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. 
Come to the end of our podcast today, so thank you very much for your time. A big thanks to LaDonna Alfano for her incredibly powerful story. We will be sure to let everybody know when her book is re released. In addition, a big thanks to Katie Wright for the incredible song we listened to today. Katie is a friend of the Martichankos and she is talented, kind, and we are lucky to have her in our lives. And last, I would like to acknowledge three friends with which I treasure my conversations. Elijah Ray, Gloria Joannice, and David Drickhammer. Let's just say they've had their fair share of what life can throw your way. These truly are the stories that matter. These are the stories that are important. So until we talk again, friends, make sure you take some time. Take some time to drift and hum. your smile and your way of talking to me just around the corner